Coming up on the Keto Camp Podcast, we take a deep dive into the gut-brain connection and take a look into what are the root causes of eczema with Krista Beagler. We're familiar with histamines because of allergies and antihistamines, but histamines aren't enemies, but they're almost always a problem in most eczema cases. Not every single one, but um, many of them. And so sometimes people are just eating a histamine buffet, and so they don't realize they're um, exacerbating it. Here's the positive part. There's no like life sentence on avoiding histamines forever, which is basically like a wine bar or like a Christmas charcuterie board. It's like fermented stuff, aged stuff, but sneaky ones would be like pineapple, banana, avocado, like that people would like to enjoy. We have access to ancient healing strategies such as ketosis, fasting, and carnivore. And on the Keto Camp Podcast, we are determined to deliver the science to you. We bring in the thought leaders in this space to have extraordinary conversations so you could apply it and change your life. Your body was built to thrive. Your body is capable of healing as long as you identify the interference and remove it. I believe you are a masterpiece because you are a piece of the master. My name is Ben Azadi. I'm the best-selling author of Keto Flex, and I want to thank you for spending part of your day with me. Hey, Keto Camper, Ben Azadi here, the host of the Keto Camp Podcast. Thank you so much for pressing play today. We bring on Krista Beagler for the first time to take a deep dive into eczema. We're going to discuss the different types of eczema and how they differ from each other. And that's going to manifest in the way that it presents in terms of symptoms. So she's going to talk about the common symptoms for different causes of eczema and what to do about those symptoms. And we talk about the root cause. We're going to take a deep dive into the digestive system, how that is connected to the brain, some simple things you can do to improve your digestive health. She's going to share the gut-skin connection as well. And there are three types of eczema, which we'll discuss. Gut-mediated, a form presented in terms of poor downstream detoxification health, like liver and kidney, and then stress-mediated as well. We're going to discuss how breath work can improve symptoms, the importance of supporting downstream detox organs, the liver, the gut, the kidneys, bowel movements, you're going to hear why she's not a fan of people sharing their food, sharing their drinks, and swapping saliva with others, especially others who have poor digestive health. Before I bring on Krista, I want to acknowledge today's Apple Podcast rating and review of the day from Health Mindful Journey, five-star review titled, Very Informative, Very Professional, Very Knowledgeable, Always Worth My Time to Continue Our Keto Journey. Thank you. Thank you, Health Mindful Journey. I appreciate you showing up and listening. I'm glad you're liking the show and loving the show, I should say. Keep showing up. We'll keep showing up for you. And I appreciate you taking the time to leave that rating and review. If you have not left the Keto Camp Podcast a rating or a review yet, please do so. Maybe I'll read your review on the next episode. Okay, let's dive deep into eczema with Krista Beagler. Krista Beagler is a registered dietitian She's actually an award-winning integrative dietitian nutritionist 
and the host of the Less Stressed Life podcast. She's also the author of the Eczema Relief Diet and Cookbook. Her mission is to educate and inspire women with science to take control of their health and heal their bodies, creating a positive domino effect on family health. She speaks on an equal mix of nerd plus approachable analogies when educating about gut health, eczema, food sensitivities, micronutrients, energy, and sleep. Here's Krista Beegler. All right, Krista Beegler, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. We're in different states, completely different environments, South Dakota versus Miami, Florida. <laughs> That's all right. There's I probably love some we could we could from... draw we could draw some connections. <laughs> we could draw some connections. We were, we were just talking offline about the beauty in both our states. We got the water here, you got the mountains there. And I'm excited to bring you on today. This is your first time on the show and I I enjoyed studying you and getting ready for today's conversation. I love what you're all about. And you have a pain to purpose story. Like so many of us do. It's like mm. you, you said offline, eczema found you. It's like the pain found <laughs> you, the condition found you. So let's talk about that. What exactly transpired for you to get into the health space? And then why did it lead you down the path of eczema? All right. So I'll try to be as concise as possible. So I went to school for dietetics. I didn't really learn in school, as most of us don't, what I practice or what I thought I was going to learn. I grew up in a pretty holistic-ish household. You know, my mom pulled out the homeopathy box instead of taking us to the doctor. So I had that kind of background and I was transitioning between doing contract work, raising small children and transitioning into private practice when my eczema create, got a life of its own. Um, for context, I remember it as early as high school, at least I remember just attributing it to genetic factors as so many people do, right? Because my sisters would also get some hairline dryness. And I have a lot of feelings about how eczema presents and what messages it tells you and love to talk about all that, but it was kind of hairline. Maybe it would show up in my eyebrows. Um, and it was very much showed up in the winter instead of the summer. And I was given some creams, you know, as one is given because the eczema toolbox is very shallow. And so I kind of thought it was like the norm or it wasn't bothering me in the context, like in, in all things considered. Then what happened was I was going through what I would call in retrospect, quite a stressful time where I had young kids at home. I was transitioning businesses, trying to do all the things. And I was taking my kids to swimming lessons every day, one week. And so I was in the chlorinated pool every day um, for a week. And one the, after day five, I woke up in a screaming rash all over my eyes and on my neck. And it was so, I mean, it was painful and it hurt and it, it sucked. And it took me actually a long time to overcome it because trying to find experts in this area was just not an option. 
unfortunately. I worked with a lot of different practitioners, did a lot of different modalities from energy type work to doing self-care days to taking different things. And eventually I just dove into the research figured out enough where I could get, I took kind of a long way around, unfortunately, because I just didn't know enough at that time. Fast forward, not too much further, like maybe two years, I'd really gotten quite a, a bit of knowledge on like different types of food reactions in people. So I was asked to present in a Facebook group for parents of kids with eczema, I think is what it was around about food reactions, because so often we point at food reactions as our, as our primary thing. I think it's secondary personally now, but, and so I was talked about that and kind of the rest was history because some women approached me, asked me if I would take their kids for eczema. So like I said before, eczema kind of found me, I didn't find it cause it's kind of a pain in the butt sometimes. And we want it to be really easy. We want it to just be topical. And unfortunately it's your skin's growing from the inside out. And so, and the other issue is that we treat it all the same and it has kind of some different behaviors in different ways it presents that helps you know what areas to prioritize. And if you prioritize incorrectly, it's just going to take you longer, unfortunately. And so we just want it to be easy. We want it to be topical. And unfortunately, I think it's kind of sort of twice the work sometimes because it's internal and external. Yeah. Let's talk more about that because you dove deep into the research and obviously you cured yourself. You healed yourself of eczema. And now you're, te you're teaching that. You taught it to children. You're teaching it to a lot of people. You mentioned that it's an inside out thing. What's the relationship with the gut to the skin there? Yeah. So one thing we can agree on practitioner, all practitioners in theory, because unanimously, very, very clear in the research, uh, dermatologists would agree with this. Everyone would agree about this. Most of the time, eczema or atopic dermatitis, let's call it this, it's the same thing, essentially. It's just rashy skin and there's at least 10 different types of it, but it often has a component of overgrowth of staph aureus on the skin. So what can happen is you scratch one spot and then you scratch a different spot and now you're translocating bacteria around. So you're spreading it around. I use functional stool testing and I will just put a flag here that a stool test isn't your answer for everything, unfortunately, because tests are imperfect. They change by the day, but they can be very helpful. But I will say that I've never seen a stool test on someone with eczema. This is what I believe. I don't think I've ever seen a stool test on someone with eczema that hasn't been positive for staph and strep aureus overgrowth. So that staph is growing from the inside out. And so you kind of have to put out a fire if there's a current staph infection. So I would say when you're actually having an infection, it is like crazy red, crazy irritated, like very, very infected is probably oozing. Um, and so you should go in and get that cultured typically because they can tell you. And that's when uh, something like a topical antimicrobial or topical antibiotic, there's some protocols out there, which we can talk about if you want uh, for helping quell that. Cause you've got to kind of put out the fire topically because you can try to do all you can internally, but if that's infected on the, on the outside, it's kind of like a wildfire and it just keeps spreading, unfortunately. So staff on the outside is well known in eczema. And I would say hundred percent it's growing from the inside out. But the thing about what we do kind of in typical primary care models, um, when someone goes in to see eczema is we don't really address kind of some of the gray area of the microbiome, right? The stuff that's like not really causing stuff, our primary care model is amazing for acute food poisoning type stuff, 
Campylobacter, things like that. Things that are causing diarrhea in the moment. You might be able to do a stool test and see things there, but usually the stool test isn't going to show you something so gray and kind of, and I would just say like my work is in the gray area, right? And so you're not going to see kind of these low levels of like strep staph overgrowth, but there's certain, you know, there's other pieces you can put together. I would say it's kind of rare for people to only have eczema and not a single other symptom, right? You want to start to put all those pieces together to try to figure out what is the priority because I just talked about staph and strep, which I feel like is pretty gut mediated, which was kind of your question, right? But, you know, skin is actually a detoxification organ. So it's not all always or only gut mediated. Sometimes it only gets more, a little bit more complex from there, in my opinion. You know, how much of a burden is uh, your drainage and detox system? So if you want, I could describe a little bit about how these eczemas look different. I would love that. Yeah. How do they, how do they present? What are the differences in between and, and what are... What are the causes of, I mean, what, what, talk about how they present and then we'll get into some of the contributing mm-hmm. factors. Yeah. Okay. So looking back on what we just discussed, staph on the skin, that's well-recognized. Everyone agrees about that. Me saying I see staph in every single gut case, that's my experience. What I'm about to say is also my experience and I feel like it's extremely valid and I'm a pattern recognition freak. And so I get to also interview a lot of really smart people or I like to, I like to look at like modalities have been around for thousands of years, like Chinese medicine. And in Chinese medicine, they have something called Chinese face mapping and around the eye, et cetera, um, is kind of like kidney and liver stuff. And I had this massive, you know, rash around my eye and every single client I've ever had that has eye eczema, when you support drainage and detox, that clears up. I like to like simplify things. So there's really like three types or priorities of eczema and how they appear that give me the priority of what to start with. So we just kind of sort of talked about gut mediated eczema. That's usually going to look bright red. If it's circular, almost always gut mediated. Usually it's going to look worse in the summer, maybe better in the winter. Not always, but usually might look better histamine. Um, mm. cause histamine goes up. Uh, and so histamine is also a secondary issue where it's a natural neurotransmitters and food from exercise, from the environment, from environmental stuff, right? We're familiar with histamines because of allergies and antihistamines, but histamines aren't enemies, but they're almost always a problem in most eczema cases, not every single one, but, um, many of them. And so sometimes people are just eating a histamine buffet. And so they don't realize they're, um, exacerbating it. But here's the positive part there's no like life sentence on avoiding histamines forever, which is basically like a wine bar or like a Christmas charcuterie board. It's like fermented stuff, aged stuff, but sneaky ones would be like pineapple, banana, avocado, like that people would yeah. like to enjoy. And so and refrigerated, refrigerated food, right? Um, if it's in there for long enough. And I would say one, you know, significant thing of why I, you know, why people like me maybe have a job is like the internet is full of eat a bunch of fermented foods. Well, that's going to make your, it's going to make it much worse. That'll make it worse. It's it's very histamine laden. And so here's the positive news. Histamine should be able to be broken down better when you have good gut bacteria. So this is good, right? So if you have good gut bacteria, then the enzymes that help break down histamine, DAO and HNMT should work more optimally. And if your drainage and detox and your liver isn't congested with stuff, then you should be able to move out histamine. So I don't think histamine stuff is a life sentence. I think there's just things that increase the bucket, right? What percentage of, uh, of, of Americans have efficient gut bacteria to break down histamines and healthy liver and kidney? Well, I couldn't give you an accurate answer because I look through a lens of people who get failed. They fail out of 
doing their own DIY stuff or other practices. Right. Or I'm, I'm looking at that lens, so I'm very biased. And so I kind of feel- Even with your biased look, what would you estimate? It's just well, a guess. No, I, I don't want to give you a percentage on that. Here's something I do want to tell you. I think people just don't digest. I don't think anyone digests properly because you've got chronic stressors that don't always look like stress that you think. Even me talking really fast right now, which is a, you know, something I'm working on is like my stressor. It makes my heart rate go fast. So if I'm going to sit down and try to eat a meal, as soon as I'm done talking really fast, I may not digest that. Stress suppresses all of your digestive enzyme status. And so at the end of the day, an undigested stuff creates a little bit of chaos. I'll just say it simply chaos in the immune system. And then it informs the immune system that there's a problem. And now you have food sensitivities, the end. <laughs> like it is, <laughs> we do not digest. Like digestion is the problem. So when people, for example, go on keto and they're like, my skin cleared up. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. You got gut dysbiosis. Got it. This is my opinion. And we can flesh out that, you know, and like, what does it tell you when you change your diet to certain types? No problem. You know, like keto has some cool benefits, but when people say I went on this and it corrected this, I'm like, well, that's fine. But you know, it's nice to know what else is going on as, as well. And also here's the negative that you probably see also. I would hope that you would agree with me about this as well, because I bet you see people who have issues going on that dietary lifestyle and also struggle with digesting their fat and their proteins, which I think most, I think most people don't really realize they don't digest well, because you're not necessarily going to see undigested food in the stool. But poor digestion's kind of, to me, like just put that on my gravestone. Like no one was digesting. <laughs> um, I think that's the, like if I was going to make a really bold statement, I would say like no one is digesting because we suppress all of our digestive enzyme, stomach acid and pancreatic enzyme function under stress. We eat fast. We're not like mechanically digesting. Um, we suppress our stomach acid. We're not digesting those animal proteins or or any of our stuff. And so, and so this is important because we need to digest our, our proteins so we can get amino acids and amino acids make up healing tissue as well as phase two de detoxification and neurotransmitters and all kinds of things. It's kind of simple, but also kind of tricky if you don't really know it's, you know, we don't have x-ray vision. So we're not really seeing that we're not digesting that stuff. You know, you know, if you're not having a banana bowel movement every morning, you're probably not digesting beautifully, right? Like, let's just like, create a system for you to check right there, right? If you're not having that, then maybe you're not digesting. Well, you know, there's a possibility. So where were, where were we? Um, we were talking about gut you stuff. Were, uh, gut dysbiosis, uh, gut mediated mm -hmm. is the first one. Gut mediated eczema, right? Yeah. So it looks red, patchy might look worse in the summer versus the winter might look worse as the day progresses. Things like that. There's probably some other things. Uh, very often like children start this way. It's inside the elbows behind the knees type thing. So from there, I would say it just gets to be another layer. So the next one is prioritizing liver or drainage and detoxification. So I mentioned earlier that the skin is a drainage and detox organ, as well as respiration, which we don't think about unless there's forest fire smoke and you can't breathe, um, right? So we just kind of forget <laughs> that our breath is so important. Lymphatics, right? The also really under-recognized detoxification system. Skin, your largest organ, right? Liver and kidney health, so urine and body. All of those are detoxification um, systems or mechanisms, right? Um, sweating, bile, bowels, all of that. So skin is a detox system. And especially you see, you see eczema about 10 to 20% in kids, right? That's one in five or 10 kids. Wild. And then in a, yeah, I know it's a wild. And then in adults, the last time I looked at the stats was one to 3%. I would assume more. I mean, we are seeing 
a lot of like histamine issues post COVID stuff. I think there's just a lot of immune insult happening. So I'll, I can leave it at that. But so what I would guess is just like, let's summarize to immune insults. So when you have liver style or like when you need to support your drainage detox as your priority, then things that would work for gut mediated eczema may not like work as well for that. And so um, just breaking it down really, really, really simply because the liver is so cool. It's like a factory. There's all these nutrients, right? And so remember, if you don't digest, you don't have all the nutrients. So the liver relies on just a ton of nutrients. But if we had to not go into every nutrient function of the liver, we had to summarize in one sentence, what does it do? It produces bile, which is stored in the gallbladder. If you don't have a gallbladder, you just don't have the bank for it. So you just have to like continually make it. So it's more important for your liver to be running optimally. Um, so bile packages up toxic burden. It's also this kick butt self-healing mechanism that your body has that's antimicrobial and does all these other awesome things. And so commonly gets kind of sludgy and stuck and doesn't function as well. So one sentence conversation around liver is that it makes bile, bile breaks down fats and packages up toxins. So if it's congested, challenged, overburdened, then you're not breaking down fatty acids, fatty acids, you're not getting vitamins A, D, E, and K, and you're not having those fatty acids make every, give every cell uh, or nourishing every cell um, to have this beautiful phospholipid membrane. And when I talk about phospholipid membranes, I think about like the soil, if it hasn't been watered for a long time, right? And like you would try to plant grass seed, it's kind of like dried up and inflammation will dry up um, phospholipid layers. That's, that's what it does. And then nutrients don't get inside the cell. So it's like having a dry lawn, can't get the seeds in. And having a beautiful phospholipid layer around every cell is like having a moist, beautiful soil that you know, lets the seeds come in and then they thrive. So having a good phospholipid layer on each cell means all the cells connected have this beautiful fatty acid layer, which means you don't have dry skin, right? So it looks nice. So when your skin is very dry and flaky, you might think that drainage and detox or liver support might be the priority. If it's presenting maybe worse in the winter, that could be a factor versus the summer because it's like most people, not everyone, but most people live where like the... Um, climate starts to be drier because of the way that we're using heat, right? And we're not having that humidity. We're having forced air heat. So it kind of exacerbates it. People with eczema, you know, there's, there's multiple pieces here of the treatment pie, but when you change location, like people in Texas right now, they're like, oh, <laughs> you know, no, not like they're just dry, right? They need to add moisture back to there. So that can be really hard on skin that's already compromised if it's already quite compromised. And that was, that was yours. Yours presented in the winter, I think you said, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yes. And then when it flared, it was the chlorine really exacerbated it. Chlorine is bleach. So bleach is chlorine. And so I had already had a burdened drainage detox system genetically. I was not given great genetics around drainage detox. So that's always just a part of my like cyclical routine, you know, like I support my drainage detox because just because I had that nasty eczema outbreak once doesn't mean I couldn't create that same system under neglect. It's about understanding what is my body whispering to me and what messages does it send to me that says, oh, I should probably support my drainage detox because we don't live in a perfect environment and that's okay. We're not going to live in a perfect environment. I'm not putting myself in a bubble. I'm enjoying my life and I'm going to go ahead and just support these processes to happen in different ways. One of the ways I know my drainage detox isn't working when my body odor stinks. <laughs> I'm like, oh, mm. that does not smell good. I should sit in the sauna. <laughs> get some of that out, right? Um, get some of that, that toxic burden out. Or if I drink crappy coffee uh, too much and for too many days, I'm 
kind of a crazy stickler now about like my quality of coffee. Cause it's just such a low hanging fruit. It's like, I can drink my coffee, but if I drink higher quality coffee, I'm not like contributing to a t- like toxic burden load. Right. Cause we all have buckets of things. Right. And so I don't think any of us have an empty bucket <laughs> on yeah. anything. It's just empty enough where it's not popping up on the skin. So yeah. Even when we're born into this world, it's still filled from uh past down yeah. to utero. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> right. And so it's not meant to be depressing. It's like, you know, it's really cool. Biology has given us a lot of tools for this. Right. We just kind of have to harness that. Right. Like we're a very nutrient dependent beings. You know, if we always try to, and you, I'm sure you agree about this. It's like, if we're just trying to oversimplify everything, you know, we do to try to improve ourselves. It's like removing toxicities and supporting deficiencies, right? Like trying to fill in the gaps of things that are missing for whatever we need. And we're all a little bit different, of course. But um, like when I talk about my genetic profile, I really need to support my drainage detox. It's just part of who I am and I'm okay with that. That's fine. Not everyone's exactly the same as me, right? Okay, so let's see, um, liver dominant or drainage detox dominant, you know, drier profile, if it's showing up around the eyes, there are some other areas that might show up, but definitely just like dry and flaky, right? You're not metabolizing fatty acids. It gives your skin this drier appearance. And so if you go after your gut right away, sometimes you can make this worse because if your bucket for drainage detox is already full and you don't gently support drainage detox, you just kind of like create more trash then your skin can react. And this is where people get kind of afraid or skin issues go kind of crazy is when people accidentally burden their drainage and detox systems more, their skin actually may look worse. And I do not like this expression, so I'm not condoning it, but you've probably heard this expression. It might get worse before it gets better. I don't like that. I don't think that's necessary, but I would say people do see that happen sometimes in skin. It doesn't mean you should keep pushing like that. It's probably like, you should probably hold off and like rearrange your priorities potentially. So you don't have that issue so much. Lots of things feel toxic burden. You know, we were just talking about respiration. Unfortunately, I see a ton of mild to moderate mold, uh, which I just like try to say like is aggressive fungus. So it just takes longer, just takes longer. And it just, you just have to have a little more awareness around like, where is this coming from? If you have chronic sinus stuff, you know, that definitely could be a bit of an issue. It's just very common and obnoxious. Yeah. So, especially here in Florida <laughs> with the humidity. Everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Everywhere. It's unfortunate. And I don't know, you know, one of my clients said like, are we just more aware of it now? Or, you know, at least a decade ago, Ben, there was like a whole movement on like candida diets and like all this stuff. And, and I mean, it's, kind of a similar, it's a similar conversation, but it's like, well, what if some of that candida was actually mold? It's just a more aggressive fungus, right? So candida is a fungus. We all have a mycobiome. We actually just don't give much lip service to the mycobiome. We talk about like fighting candida and reducing sugar and all these things. Well, we actually have a commensal population of fungus. It's when it gets out of control, which antibiotics can allow it to have a party. That can be, you know, a, a festering. You can have a topical or an um, inhalant exposure somewhere. For me, I, this has been quite an experience, you know, practicing, going through this, watching it in my own clients. Um, and I think this is kind of interesting stuff. But for me, you know, I grew up in what I would consider a little bit of a moldy basement. So I had, that's actually where some of those initial symptoms came from. But if you don't really seal the deal or work on the mold stuff, what happens is you're like a touch of a canary in a coal mine. So I could keep the symptoms under the skin and like under wraps, but sometimes if I was exposed to mold or fungus somewhere, it would like, I'd have symptoms kind of flare. And I thought, well, this is weird. So I figured out that, oh, well, I have kind of a resident colony. These, this mold can kind of come in, set up a resident resident colony, especially gliotoxin, and it can start to proliferate. It's like a self 
is feeding dandelion and just keeps giving off seeds. And so it can cause a lot of like severe brain fog. So I think that's actually such a frustrating topic for me because, and my, my jam for that is like mild to moderate severe. Those people are like the ones that are like the mast cell activation syndrome, fairly unstable, et cetera. When it's really, really bad, I try to avoid that. There's specialists for that. Um, but I feel like my jam is like finding it when it's kind of mild to moderate, but it's still kind of disappointing, right? It's like, oh, dang it. It's kind of like all over. And so you're trying to just manage, improve, improve the terrain. So got off on a tangent there, but I would say that one's kind of a stinky one because <laughs> it's really um, contributing to your toxic burden quite a bit and also like screen your gut and your adrenals. And it's just, it just kind of doesn't really know any limits, unfortunately. So, um, and I, I see it too much because of skin, right? Like it's, your skin's a detox organ. So I unfortunately probably see it proportionally. I feel a little proportionally higher than maybe some others. So. Hey, when was the last time you bit into a juicy burger or a perfectly cooked steak and thought to yourself, this is the best thing I've ever tasted. If it's been a while, it's probably because most meat products are conventionally raised, which not only affects the flavor profile, but significantly diminishes the beneficial nutrients and minerals. And believe it or not, even products that are labeled as grass-fed or ethically raised to make you think they're high quality, are often finished on grain or in factory farms, which is why I am so excited to share something with you today that will not only help you avoid the hormones, antibiotics, and pesticide residues that diminish the taste of conventionally raised meat, but could also save you nearly $1,000 over the next year on your grocery bill. And the best part, this may be the best tasting thing you've had in a long time. So what the heck am I talking about? I'm talking about Wild Pastures Meat Delivery. They provide the highest quality meats from small, regenerative, family-run farms here in the United States that prioritize sustainability and animal welfare. Their beef is 100% grass-fed. Their pork and poultry are pasture-raised, something you won't find anywhere in the grocery store, resulting in meats that are not only healthier for you, but also better for the environment. One of the reasons why me and my fiance Natasha loves wild pastures is that we can opt out out of supporting harmful conventional farming practices and instead support small family-run farms without spending a fortune. And the convenience doesn't stop there. They offer delivery straight to your door so you can enjoy delicious, high-quality meats without even leaving your house. No matter where you are in the lower 48 states, Wild Pastures has got you covered. Not only is this the most convenient way to get your meat products, but Wild Pasture meats are better for you nutritionally and they're higher in the total nutrients, phytonutrients, antioxidants, key fatty acids, vitamins, minerals, proteins, and amino acids. And today, for keto campers, for a limited time, you can get 20% off every box plus free shipping for life and... $15 off your first box. This is a crazy deal and I hope you take advantage of it. So make the switch to Wild Pastures today and save nearly $1,000 on your grocery bill while feeling healthier and enjoying the best tasting meats of your life. All you need to do is go to the link in the podcast notes down below. Everything is already applied. All you got to do is click that link, customize your order, and you'll have some delicious, healthy tasting meats very soon. Head to the podcast notes down below, click the link, enjoy your wild pastures. Okay, let's get right back to this episode. 
Yeah, mold is is nasty. It's it's a problem, and I, I think part of the problem of this day and age, because you mentioned, was some of the candida stuff, mold stuff in the past, maybe, but also the way they're building new buildings, they're not they're not being able to breathe, and it's just creating more an environment for mold to grow. They're using drywall, and then that gets wet, and it's just like the mold is just feeding off of that. So I think that's a combination of the new the way that buildings are being being built here, the newer builds. Yeah. And I mean, look at how popular rehabbing has got. I think if you do a crappy rehab job, be easy to cover that up. I mean, anything that's wet more than 24 hours is going to get moldy. If you see mold, it's giving off lots of mycotoxins. So I always say I try to take like a chillax approach to this because like no one needs to have their nervous system ramped up further um, from fear around this. And that's that can be how people feel initially. They're like, you know, they're like going through shock and awe around it. And then it's like, okay, well, you can, it's like, it's not something we can't deal with. It's just little harder than other stuff. It's fine, but it's, um, and and one other thing that's kind of tricky and I have not perfected, you know, my mold questionnaire stuff because just because it's such a wide thing, but you usually screen for fungal symptoms and you kind of look at the severity and how people recover. So some fungal symptoms that are like kind of just like these are fungal symptoms would be, um, cradle cap or, um, seborrheic dermatitis or like eczema or flakes on the scalp, itchy ear canals, white-coated tongue, chronic sinus congestion, um, and recurrent vaginal infections, UTIs, bacterial vaginosis, et cetera. And that is definitely comes out of clinical work um, with my colleagues and I like, oh man, these people all have mold that have these chronic chronic vaginal infections. So hopefully that helps someone um, kind of sleuth because what, because what happens is people get better and then they kind of backslide a little bit, unfortunately. I have lots of feelings about people backsliding because that's not like my goal in life. I'm a psycho achiever. So I'm like, why would this backslide? Let's figure it out. Like, why would that happen? Okay. So we're on types of eczema. We got kind of gut mediated and what that looks like, kind of red and angry, maybe, um, round, maybe summer. Got winter is more like dry, flaky, maybe a little worse in the winter. Um, maybe certain areas of the body, like the eyes are affected. Um, especially like you can hear other drainage detox symptoms. Maybe they're um, retaining fluid a um, little bit, like maybe just a, a couple pounds, right? A little water weight or something like that. There's some other drainage detox symptoms. And then finally, the last bucket I would say is stress mediated. And you're, you might be like, well, Krista, you mentioned that before. I did, but when you have hand eczema, um, usually stress is a huge piece. It's really interesting how often, I think there's a couple pieces to this, but what happens often is people have eczema as a child, they grow out of it. And then maybe as an adult, they get it in a different place. And so I always think like, it's just kind of building, like the buckets building, maybe the drainage detox is like not performing as well, or people just kind of suddenly after a big stressor get hand eczema. It's really interesting, um, how that happens. Now, the last few years were interesting also because a lot of people were using alcohol based stuff. And so it was screwing that phospholipid layer on the, like, it was like eradicating that phospholipid layer that's meant to be naturally antimicrobial and like self-protective on the hand. So they were stripping it away and allowing dysbiotic bacteria like staph to come in and set up shop. So that could be a piece of it as well, for sure. But when you have hand eczema, there's always like a big cortisol adrenal component. So when I see it on the hands and it's like inherently stressful to have it on your hands too, like you're trying to use them. And so at that point, I always can, it, there's always a correlation with what people's adrenals and cortisol is doing. And so you always have to support that area anyway. And you might say, Krista, like, well, couldn't you always support drainage detox? And could you always support adrenal function? I would say, yes, that's always fine. <laughs> you could always do that. But, you know, depending on the severity, sometimes you have to do a little bit more intervention. Um, 
and it might take a little longer. So that's kind of like the, the cherry on top is like, well, when it looks like this and all these other symptoms present, it's like, you know, when your adrenals are in tough shape, when your HPA access, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal access is not functioning beautifully, you're usually pretty nutrient deplete. You need to do a lot of restoration to the body. You just have to be gentle with it for a while. And so that's hard for people because usually those are perfectionist types that really want to be, everyone wants to be better like yesterday, right? And so you have to actually kind of be maybe a little bit uh, surrendering sometimes and like let yourself heal a little bit and sleep a little bit more than you're used to, et cetera. So this is, this is so good. I, I want to unpack a little bit. I want to extract some of these three different types here. So let's talk about the gut, right? You mentioned that this is going to show up more red patchy inside the elbows, maybe behind the knees, et cetera. What are some of the tools that you teach your clients in terms of improving their gut microbiome? You do testing and you do some stool testing you mentioned, but there are people out there, some practitioners say, all you need to do is take some probiotics. No, it's prebiotics, increase your fiber, decrease your fiber, go keto, go carnivore. There's so many different tools. So I want to know what you use, what you've seen works. And I know that it's going to be different for the person and we're meeting that person where they're at and understanding that. But what are in general, some of the tools you use for the gut microbiome? Well, let me kind of dissect one thing you said, because I feel like we could spend probably an hour talking about that, which is okay. Um, but let me dissect what you said there, which was probiotics and so and, and prebiotics. So prebiotics are supposed to feed good bacteria, but I think most clinicians that practice would tell you they seem to feed good and bad depending on the prebiotics. So that might work for someone, but sometimes it doesn't when everything's a hot mess express. Next up is that there's some bacteria strains, probiotics, because probiotics are simply bacterial strains that are taken orally, right, exogenously. And so there are some strains that upregulate histamine. So that may not work well, right? There's some that don't or that are neutral. Many of them are killed by stomach acid. I'm a huge fan of spore-based probiotics. One time I gave myself a die-off rash from taking too much Saccharomyces boulardii, which is an antifungal type spore-based probiotic. Really? Yeah. I mean, it took me a while to put together my mold history. <laughs> you know, like I was like, man, it's kind of odd, you know, but I also tend to be like, you know, uh, use myself as like quite an experiment sometimes. So a die-off rash is not necessarily itchy. It actually can look just kind of spotted everywhere. It's like, oh, why is my, why do I have spots everywhere for like two days? And then it goes away and it's not necessarily itchy. So little known fact actually <laughs> is what a real die-off rash um, in my experiences has looked like um, in myself and clients. And so I like Saccharomyces boulardii and spores like that because they're going to get past the stomach acid. Spores typically can have some bacteria shifting properties, but they're probably not going to be enough when you have H. pylori or other certain bacteria that need certain, potentially certain treatment. And there are gentle treatments around. Um, I love short chain fatty acids. Um, short chain fatty acids are upregulated in ketosis, right? Kind of a an interesting thing because usually you mix good bacteria with fiber and it makes short chain fatty acids. It's kind of funny that ketosis would upregulate it, but it's like your body has these cool self healing mechanisms. Yeah. And like you said, I'm using functional testing, looking to see what the bacteria status is, looking to see what the intestinal um, digestive status is. Cause I'm also trying to support, you know, there you go. It's like, if you're trying to support your gut health, improve your digestion first. And that's hard because part of the reason your digestion sucks is because your gut health is a mess, but you can start at the top and you can chew each bite 20 times and go ahead and raise your hand. If you are chewing each bite 20 times, probably no one is raising their hand right now. So those are just, that is like such a crazy, crazy hard and little thing that does actually make a difference. Like if you can digest your protein and if your stomach acid sucks and you could get an improvement 
by just mechanical digestion, you could actually get some of the amino acids from that and help heal your tissue faster. How cool is that, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So getting into more of a parasympathetic state before you eat your meal is key. Not rushing, right. slow down, Right, because that's rest and digest, food. right? Yeah. Right. So getting more parasympathetic, which most people don't do. They're, they're rushing. No. They're, uh -uh. And I'm guilty of it from time to time too, right? Totally. Totally been there. A lot of times I'm still in training, right? I do breath work for my clients a couple of times a month, like pretty intensive breath work, but it's pretty cool because if you start to um, expand the diaphragm, now you're moving. Uh, what I love about this is like, I was like blown away by breath work because you're stimulating your big lymph dumping. So your lymph system doesn't really have a pump. It has the cisterna chile it dumps into right under your kind of breastbone, right? Like above your belly button. So when you're doing diaphragmatic breathing, you're pumping your lymphatics. How cool is that? You're improving your digestion. And when you're doing deep breathing, you're increasing ATP turnover by 15 times. It's like you're healing your adrenals with breath work. How freaking cool is that? What else? Um, when you're doing some of that oxygenation, sometimes your, your body uses oxygenation for healing, right? Um, so sometimes you'll get a sensation in a certain area that's been kind of in pain for a long time. So I like to use that because we have to practice. We have to practice engaging our parasympathetic. We do not practice. And so it's a struggle, right? It's a struggle to move into parasympathetic. If you, you know, it's a struggle to pick up a 50 pound bag of something with my left hand if I only ever use my right hand. And that's the only one I ever use with something. So it's the same concept. It's a, it's a, it's like the equivalent of a muscle that doesn't get used. And so you're not going to be very good at using it. Do you like using heart rate variability as a gauge for that balance? I don't have my clients measure heart rate variability automatically. There's a fun app I'm playing with right now where you can put your finger on the back of your camera and it'll measure heart rate variability. What I understand is that none of these biometric devices is perfect, which is not surprising, but you're just kind of measuring if you use the same type of thing to measure over and over and over, then you could, what you're looking at is trends, I guess. So from people smarter than me about that topic. Um, so I don't, but some of my clients do, and then they come with those questions and conversations. And I had someone recently who was, that was one of her primary goals was improve her heart rate variability because her aura ring was always telling her it was not okay. And we did a lot of things and breath work was the real key that unlocked it for her. So Pretty wow. cool. Is there any particular time that you have them do the breath work? Is it any time that fits into their schedule? Is it the morning? Is it right before they eat or any of the above? Um, so what I'm doing with them is, so when I, when they first come into working together, I teach them four square breathing, but then I offer like live more intensive breath work sessions a couple times a month, but that's not a hindrance. It's accessible anytime. The thing about breath work is that you should exhale greater to or equal than you inhale. So if you inhale three, you should exhale three, four, five, six. And one of my breathwork coaches says a really good thing to do is like, just walk around with your mouth closed one day and see how, like, see what that's like. Cause usually you're, you know, talking. So for people, one, one area I struggle with a lot is people in unrealized stress, not only for my clients, but also previously for myself. As I had markers of stress, I'm like, well, this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> But when you talk all day in appointments, you're mouth breathing, right? So if you're mouth breathing, you're more chest breathing than you are diaphragmatic breathing. And that's that's automatically um, a more sympathetic state versus, or a fight or flight state versus a parasympathetic or rest and digest state. So I don't know, it's like crazy. Yeah, you know? that makes sense. Yeah. 
I, uh, I personally, at night, I mouth tape. It makes a big difference for me because I tend to breathe through my mouth if I'm not putting the mouth tape on my mouth. And that, that helps my, with my HRV, et cetera. But throughout the day, I'm conscious of when I'm just walking around and my mouth breathing or in my nostril breathing. Like you said, when you're doing a lot of interviews and doing a lot of content and speaking a lot, you are mouth breathing. And that you know, can be problematic. But if you're doing everything right outside of that, you know, it's the balance. It's the sympathetic versus parasympathetic balance. So you can't, you don't want to be too much parasympathetic. You don't want to be too much sympathetic. It's the proper balance. Like you said, right hand and left hand, you want to use both arms. Right. Yeah. But practice, right? Like do some practice things. Breathwork is just, I'm always just kind of blown away at how powerful it is, you know? Mm -hmm. So. That's great. Anything else on the gut before we move on to some of the downstream detoxification pathways? Well, I feel like it's a pretty big topic. So we talked about because something that irritates me is when people are like, oh, I tried probiotics. I mean, that's not my first. I, I tend to use some version of the integrative process where I'm getting rid of the bad bacteria, but that that may not work if you need to do a drainage detox first, right? So controlling, addressing the bacteria and the fungus and maybe the parasites in the gut is very important. And you're not going to, I, this could be debated, but I think if you're going to kick out a parasite, you're pro, like my opinion is you're going to need to get in there and address it individually, typically, or, or you're gonna have to treat it, which is going to vary depending on how that's presenting. So I will just kind of say that, but I think there's stuff like you can support your digestion without like going crazy treatments in the gut. And I would say, be careful. Don't throw a bunch of grenades in your gut. Um, my mantra is be more supportive than aggravating, right? Like be more supporting, throw out more grass seed than like Roundup, you know, to your gut. <laughs> so just some thoughts, you know, it's to it's not good. mess yourself Makes up sense. worse <laughs> would be my comment there. Yeah, exactly. Have you, I'm just curious because I haven't come across enough research for me to come to this conclusion. It's a hypothesis for right now. And the hypothesis is those who are drinking alkaline water every single day, high alkaline water for years, I hypothesize that it will deplete, possibly deplete some of their stomach acid and lead to some some digestive issues. Again, I haven't come across enough research yet. I'm searching, but have you come across anything? What are your thoughts on that hypothesis? There, this is a discussion and it does make sense. And I think kind of like everything. So one tricky thing about being a human is we really like immediate gratification. So if someone's got some heartburn issues and they use alkaline water, sometimes it will give them some relief. So our tendency is to do more of the thing that gives us relief. And I think we tend, we need to cycle our interventions or periodize our interventions um, because our stomach acid should... we should have an acidic environment. So that is actually a fun whole conversation about how we screw up stomach acid in so many ways with PPIs and all kinds of stuff, all kinds of travesties for gut health, honestly. One other thing about gut health is quit sharing your forks and drinks with everybody because you're sharing their microbiota. And that's actually like a huge vector point for getting infections and or reinfections. So that's just a, such a simple thing that probably no one really talks about at all, but it's a really big problem. So thanks for reminding me <laughs> to say that. Yeah. You know, it's worth to say, no, no, thank you. Um, you might look rude, but Hey, you're saving your gut microbiome. It's very important. So that's a good tip right there. Hey, keto camper. What if there was an easy way to help detoxify your body, ease stress, unwind, and hey, even burn more calories. What I'm talking about is sauna usage. Now, there's a lot of studies that show the benefits of using a sauna, 
And it could be kind of complicated because they're expensive and typically you have to go to a facility to use a sauna. What I love about my sauna is that it's a blanket that I use at the comfort of my own home. I use the one from Bond Charge. And sauna blankets work by raising your heart rate to that of physical exercise so you burn calories while you're relaxing. And you could burn up to 600 calories in one session. Sweating also helps flush out toxins like heavy metals from your body. And elevating your heart rate while relaxing releases endorphins, which can leave you feeling euphoric. I feel like I just got a 60-minute massage when I get out of this thing. It works by using infrared light, which heats the body directly rather than the air around you like a traditional sauna. This means you get the same benefits at a lower heat. You also don't need to have your head in the heat like a traditional sauna. It's very easy to use. You can enjoy a session of 30 to 45 minutes while relaxing, reading, watching TV, or meditating. It's easy to clean. It's low EMF, especially compared to other brands out there. Simple and easy to get set up. And even more important, you, Keto Camper, are offered a nice coupon code for Bond Charge's products, including their infrared sauna blanket. So head over to bondcharge.com slash ketocamp and use the coupon code ketocamp at checkout to get 15% off your order. We'll drop that link down below along with the coupon code in the podcast notes. Okay, let's get right back to this episode. Let's transition to some of the detoxification uh, organs that we have, the liver, the kidney, we have the gut, we have sweating, we have rest, uh, breathing, you mentioned that. So what are your favorite ways? Let's talk about the liver. I call the liver the soccer mom organ because of all the things that she does, like the soccer mom, right? And especially with keto, you're right, bile. So many people who get into this world of ketosis and a ketogenic diet, they start increasing their dietary fat. That liver cannot keep up with that demand. So now they can't break down the fat. They're not absorbing the fatty acids and they get loose stools, possibly diarrhea, or sometimes they don't, but they're still not breaking it down. They don't have an idea to why. And I uh, want to get your idea or, or your tips to what you do with your clients to support their liver. We'll start with some easy things and maybe some more advanced tips. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, think, I like to think about it from external versus internal. Try to always start external, and that's pretty readily available. Like most people deal with their environment before they get to me. So um, drink out of stainless steel, out of glass, avoid plastics, the things, right, that add to your toxic burden. I like people to go through their day of like, what are you inhaling and touching all day? Like, I'm in my sheets all night. So what did I wash my sheets with? Like basics, right? Um, fun story. There's some toxic burden tests I don't really use, but I am friends with the gal who's kind of in charge of that part of the lab, one of this, one of these labs. And so I said to her, um, what, what's like the worst one of these you've ever seen? And she said, there was a teenage Instagram influencer that got a lot of personal care products from free from different companies. And she had the worst tox burden test they'd ever seen. And I was like, you know, sometimes you just don't think that it's that big of a deal, but whatever you're slathering all over your skin is so important. So like, if you're like, I am like such a goofy person. I like, don't really like, I don't think there's an inherent danger around lotion. I'm just like lazy to the point. I'm like, Oh, I don't, I don't want to have to put lotion on. And so I'm like, I would like to hydrate from the inside out, <laughs> like improve my phospholipid membranes if my skin looks dry. And so any, anyway, it's kind of funny. So just consider what you put on large areas of your skin, maybe make sure it's like a really good oil or something like, like a really pure high quality oil, something like that. It's not just full of perfumes and fragrances. I mean, fragrances are like 
not good. So think about what's external, right? Always. And then on the note of external, there's external or exogenous detoxification. So I will tell you, I got my skin 80 to 90% better. People could not see that I had a rash, but it was still really rough right here. And until I started using the sauna at that juncture, I didn't get it hundred percent better. The sauna helps massively, um, helps with cellular turnover. It increases like passive exercise. It's like turning over, it increases blood flow. So it improves like healing speeds and you can clear out molds and clear out heavy metals, all kinds of things. Like we have that in the literature um, about sauna. So that's pretty cool. Not all saunas are created equal necessarily. Like a lot of research I have is around infrared saunas. People always ask, can I just go to the sauna? My gym? Maybe, I don't know. I, all my research is infrared sauna. Like sauna has been around since the beginning of civilization. So try it. Um, but beware of like crappy, poorly maintained wet saunas that might have mold underneath. <laughs> so infrared saunas. And I will tell you another little anecdote. My sister-in-law was using a sauna in our hometown. It was an expensive sauna at some local office. And she's like, I'm not sweating. It's like 150 degrees. I'm not sweating. It's like, I don't know what's wrong. But she came to my house, sat in my sauna, full sweat, 130 degrees. She's like, okay, I guess I'm going to order my own. <laughs> so they're just not all the same. If you're having issues with one, one, if you're not sweating, it might be that your detox is so jammed up. The antidote is like um, going as much as you can for like 10 minutes at a time, or maybe just try a different sauna. Maybe it's just like not a good one. So that's a possibility. So exogenous detox, I just think sauna is killer, especially for skin stuff. It just is like very helpful. So that's probably one of my favorite things that I think is that most people like feel good. You know, like after exercise, you feel good. You could go sit in a sauna and feel good. But uh, pro tip, you must towel off. If you're not toweling off that sweat, you're just like reabsorbing it. So make sure you hydrate like heck and towel off as you go. Good pro tip. What about, what do you think about taking some binders right before you go into that sauna? Mm. I think you can, if you want, I am not like a forever binder lover. I like to use binders with mold. If I know there's mold, I think that sauna and binders work well together. The thing about charcoal um, based binders is that they need to be, they bind up everything. Yeah, minerals, so they should be taken stuff. away from, yep. mm -hmm, they should be taken away from food and supplements and they would not be my like first go to if not needed. I think sometimes they're really life-giving for some people that have a lot of toxic burden, but so if, if they're helpful for you, awesome. If not, I mean, colostrum has a lot of binding activity on its own. It's very natural. That doesn't pull away from minerals. So I always like, for me, it's a bit of a game on like, well, what's like going to do multiple things for you <laughs> or what could be even it's better. Great question so to ask. Those are great, great yeah. thought process. Okay. Yeah. So internally, you want to talk about the soccer mom. So just the liver. I always think amino acids are like the bomb.com. So I've brought that up multiple times. So amino, if you like look up phases of liver detoxification, there's a lot of pieces about it. And I have a lot of feelings about it. So first you must be pooping. You must be sweating. You must be hydrating and urinating and you must be breathing clean air. That's phase three. So let's just get that out of the way, right? So if we're not addressing that, then maybe that's the place to start. I actually recently kind of went through an experience where I realized like, oh man, my water is actually... Not, I mean, I know that sounds like really duh, but I had, we like drilled our own well and, you know, remember my history is chlorine exposure causing. So I was like, oh, I'm, I'm good. I don't have chlorine. I'm not on city water. I'm good. You know, we dug our own well. My husband tells me how great the well water is. And then I'm doing some testing showing me how crazy high my iron and manganese are in my body, which, you know. You need some, but not like the level we had. I was like, oh, this is really hard on your liver when it's this high. So it's just really um, crazy how you can think you're all good to go. And then you realize like, oh, that was actually really um, stressful in my body. And I didn't even realize it. I just was like, oh, 
I thought I was perfect. <laughs> I thought my water was great. I thought it was, I thought it was good. Um, no, it was, I was clearly having some stuff around that. So there's such, there can be some sneaky things like that. Um, but when we think about nutrients, the liver is very nutrient dependent. So getting nutrients, digesting your food is massively important to get those nutrients and amino acids come from proteins. So digesting your proteins, which is a real problem. And you know how you can tell if you're not digesting protein? If your B12 is probably under like 500, I'm sure you're not digesting your protein. <laughs> I'm sure you're not. And unfortunately, the reference range for B12 has gotten lower and lower as I've been practicing. Now it's now it's like 290 or something. I'm like, really? You're probably going to feel like poop when your B12 is 290. Like, this is terrible. So under 500, I would support B12. But I would say it's really about protein digestion more than supplementation. Yeah, and another sign, at least what I've seen, is is when you feel like you eat a piece of steak or you ate some animal-based protein and it kind of just sits in your gut, that heavy feeling as well. For sure, yep, like a brick. You know, yep. ate a steak, feels like a brick. Yep, you're not digesting that, baby. That's right. Take some enzymes in the interim, worst case scenario. Like, yeah, at there least you that. go, right? That'll give you some you know, immediate support. Yeah, that is a good DIY gut option. I like to have people make their own enzymes eventually, but, um, you know, taking enzymes is better than not digesting in my opinion, like by a long shot. And actually you can have a lot of relief in symptoms if you could just digest your food. Do I sound repetitive? Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. No, I, I, I love it. Repetition is the key. Frequency creates the genius. I always say that. So keep, keep it up. All right. So that's the liver. Anything else before we move on to what you like to do for the kidney? I think that's pretty good for the liver. I mean, there's a lot of toxic okay. burden, exogenous, sauna, amino acids, protein. I mean, it just really hits on each other. It's fantastic protocol. Fantastic. Yeah. What about the kidney? What's, what can we do with the, for the kidney? For kidney? Now, this one's a little more interesting. I would say the big thing here is hydration, checking those numbers. I mean, like if you don't have massive, I see kidney issues mostly when people have massive toxic burden issues, when they've supplemented like calcium, like crazy you know, they like create imbalances. Otherwise I don't have like massive issue. And actually this is a, I feel like this is a growing topic. Like someone was like, do the kidney diagram next on Instagram to me the other day. I used to work in kidney nutrition for eight years, actually, before I did private practice, I worked in nephrology. So I saw a lot of end stage kidney disease. And so there's a lot to say about that, but when your kidneys are functioning normally and you're hydrating well, and you're supporting them that way, if you don't take a bunch of bad supplements, you're probably not stressing out your kidneys. And if you're, there's, maybe you get this a little bit more in your, in your field, right? Cause people might be doing more protein. So do they, are they seeing some kidney stress every once in a while? What do you, what would you tell me about your audience's issues around kidneys? Because from my perspective, I will have people retaining fluid. I support lymphatics. Um, I make sure their minerals are balanced, but otherwise I don't run into crazy kidney issues unless I've got a biotoxin issue, a mold issue. That's a big one. It's causing kidney. It's very abusive to the glomeruli. Um, those are the big ones. Yeah, that's why it's frequent urination with those with those individuals. Yeah, you know, for me, it's the, those who are uh, type two diabetic, right? And they're either on meds that are forcing the the sugar out of the kidneys or to be filtered through the kidneys, or you know, they just have excessively high blood sugar levels for or, so many years, or blood, right? High so, blood pressure, yeah, of course. Right, right exactly. Yeah, so those are not pressure. my clients. That's the majority. <laughs> Right. Those are the majority of my uh, community and clients that come into my world. So that's where I see some of the kidney issues. Not so much by just increasing their animal-based protein over time. Might be some changes in their bun and different markers, but I haven't seen that to be a, con a concern. It's really the high blood pressure, the high glucose levels and certain medications on my end. Yeah. I have someone with an autoimmune kidney 
CKD right now. And so it's making me go way back. And so I've had to get into a bunch of integrative kidney stuff, which there's not a lot. I I know the people who work in that area and they're, I can count them on one hand. (laughs) Things that have been, that are very beneficial to the kidneys include cordyceps mushrooms um, and other beneficial mushrooms and supporting mitochondria. I actually like to do red light on the kidneys, but obviously the first thing is improving the blood pressure, which I think mineral balance can be huge. Also working on stress stuff and breath work stuff can be huge personally. My mother-in-law's blood pressure got like dramatically better when I just asked her to consume more food-based potassium because people are so often out of balance and it's not, doesn't really show up on blood work. It's just a niche I'm into. And then blood sugar stuff. So you're totally right. Yes, that is the main cause of damage glomeruli. But yeah, some red light in that area may be supportive. Mushrooms. I mean, there definitely is some other stuff too, but oh, that's such a hard, I mean, it like breaks my heart when people have some kidney challenges around that. And I like, I will say like, I, part of my baseline foundational protocol includes um, organ complexes. And so um, kidney glandular is part of it. And so I feel like I'm supporting kidney a little bit with kidney glandular. Love that. Big fan of that. Well, we covered so much. Uh, we we got to do round two because I, I have a lot more in my notes here that we didn't get to. And that usually means it's a great conversation because we dove deep into Good deal. a few things. So we'll do round two if you're open to it. And you said deal. So we'll do that. Sure. Um, but I want you to share a little bit about where my audience could go find you. You have an awesome podcast. Share about that and then share your website. If they want to work with you, just learn more about you. Where can they go? Sure. I love podcasting. My podcast is called The Less Stressed Life, which was an accidental synonym I was trying to use for inflammation. Anyway, it's really come full circle. That's largely (laughs) what I work on is helping people overcome like inflammatory symptoms, food sensitivities, and improve their energy without restrictive um, dieting. So if you go to lessstresslifeyoucanfindit.com or kristabigler.com, you'll find me there. Or I'm on Instagram at anti-inflammatory nutritionist. All right. We're going to put all of that down below. I have one final question for you, Krista. Sure thing. My favorite supplement in the world is a supplement called vitamin G. And I call it vitamin G because it's vitamin gratitude and all of the anti-inflammatory oxidosin dopamine producing properties that takes place when you're in this state of gratitude. So my question for you, what are you grateful for today? Mm, Thank you for asking that. I was like, oh, what am I going to be asked? Am I going to (laughs) be asked about vitamin N, vitamin nature? This sounds a little cheesy. I'm really grateful when I can connect and be on podcasts and be really generous and share because especially because I kind of feel like I've been gifted a lot of somewhat useless knowledge about eczema, <laughs> especially like a, like, it's like really different when you have an intimate knowledge about something, you understand it differently. So I'm thankful for the ability to connect and to share. Cause really, if I could pick one job, it would just be to be a podcaster. I love interviewing people and it's lucky for me when I get to be interviewed. So thank you so much for interviewing me today. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. And and you're right. It's so fun being a podcaster. I'm going on your show. So, you know, we'll, the, the roles will, will switch very, very soon, but it was great. I acknowledge you for, you know, the geekiness that you bring. I love the geekiness and the science and the, you know, your findings and your, uh, you know, your analogies and, and, and little funny shares there. It, it makes people, at least I, it makes, helps me understand science better when you make it funny and relatable and you do a good job of that so i want to say thank Thank you krista we'll do round two and keep uh educating all the people you're educating and helping i appreciate that and we'll talk again on round two thank you again perfect thanks i hope you enjoyed that conversation with krista go check out the podcast notes if you want to learn more about what we discussed 
Her website, her social media, and her podcast can also be found in the podcast notes. If you want to watch the video version of today's interview and all Keto Camp podcast interviews, that could be found on our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash keto camp. Go subscribe. Go watch those videos. Please consider sharing this episode with somebody you know who has eczema, somebody you know who could benefit from a conversation like this. Please consider leaving the show a rating and review. I want to thank you for showing up and pressing play and listening to the entire episode of the show. I'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Benazadi, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own. And this podcast does not accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or non-direct interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.